And then I guess from that, we talked about uh, what is relevant to children or what is going to make PE meaningful for students. And we got to uh, storytelling, right? Because mm-hmm. this age of children really learns through stories and narratives, movies, pictures. So then we challenged ourselves in the last unit of the year, it was kind of a trial run for this year to um, make a unit based on a story. Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for tuning in to my Run Your Life podcast, and I really do appreciate you listening to any episode that you can. One of the things I love doing on this show is to have conversations with different educators from around the world. And in today's episode, I have a conversation with a good friend of mine, Zach Smith, who I work with at the Coast School in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Zach is doing really amazing things in his early years physical education program, and he brings with him a wealth of experience and knowledge when it comes to designing movement experiences that are relevant for young kids and really help to develop their motor competence in multiple different areas. Zach is a very deep thinker uh, with everything that he does in his program. And recently, well, not recently, but over the past year, Zach has really focused on um, storytelling in physical education with the purpose being to engage young kids on a deeper level with their movement experiences. Zach and I have teamed up to do a research project that we're going to discuss in this episode. And uh, we're going to also dive into other areas of Zach's uh, practice, teaching practice, that he constantly inquires into in order to adapt, modify, and create the best learning experiences possible for his young kids. So if you are an early years teacher, a curriculum coordinator, or an early years leader in education, I really think that you'll find great value in this discussion, and I hope you share it with anybody who you know uh, that will benefit from hearing Zach's story and a little more about his teaching philosophy and how he delivers his program. So with that, let's jump right into this discussion with Zach Smith. So, Zach, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. I've been wanting to do this for quite a while. Even though we work regularly together, it's still good to have this conversation uh, about your teaching practice because I think you're doing really amazing things, and I really want uh, other teachers to hear about the work you're doing. So thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me. So to give the listeners some context into Zachariah Smith, Tell us where you're from, a little bit about early days, kind of the role of physical activity in sport, 
and how those things um, factored into your life when you were young? Uh, I'm originally from Aurora, Colorado, suburb of Denver, and um, I was always really active as a kid, um, just playing basketball was my sport. I did play soccer as well when I was a younger kid. And then um, something that really changed my life was uh, joining the swim team, I think, when I was like around eighth grade or something. Before that, before I joined swim team, I just joined it because uh, my friends were in it, but I could barely swim. I still held my nose when I was under, when I went underwater. And then slowly over, uh, the next five years, all swimming all through high school, I ended up uh, my final meet of the year. Uh, I was an alternate in the uh, state championship relay team. So that's like just kind of a, um, an illustration of how you can better yourself and improve yourself through hard work and just enjoyment, really. It was a, a, swimming was a really tough slog through high school, you know, getting up at 5 a.m., going to school before everybody else, getting in a pool in the dead of winter at 5 a.m., and or weightlifting, and then doing it after school as well, putting on a wet swimsuit. <laughs> uh, and, you know, school on top of that, homework after that, it was, it was crazy, but, you know, it was a definitely worthwhile experience for sure. So that's that's how I stayed active uh, in when in my younger days, the role of uh, motion and movement and physical activity. And then these days, you know, I'm a biker and a frisbee golfer, try to stay active playing football with my son, although we haven't been as active as we could be in recent times. Tough to do in the heat, but um, when you think back mm-hmm. to when you were swimming, what was your specialty? I was like a sprinter, a freestyle sprinter. Like 50 meter? I would do 50, 100, and then the relays. Sometimes my coach made me do the 200 IM, which I really hated because I was terrible at breaststroke, very slow in breaststroke. I do a little bit of everything, though, really. But, yeah, I think I was best at sprinting. That was the only race I ever won. You know, they used to publish the, um, like, our... in the newspaper in the sports section I don't know if they still do this but they published the results of the meet and that was if you won the race you had your last name and your time published and I won one race during my whole time okay. 150 meters <laughs> that's cool what kind of coach like were obviously you were coachable but um, what style of coaching worked best to motivate you to stay focused and inspired to improve uh you know it's pretty funny um i think because my co- i always was you know we you know there's a lane system so like lane one's like all the can we can i say badasses on this podcast we you, have to you can that. swear if you want man no problem lane one was all the badasses and then you go down in skill level all the way down to lane six and um those, like, I was, you know, as I told you, in eighth grade, before the year before high school, I was still holding my nose when I was, before I could go underwater. So I obviously started off in lane six. We didn't actually get a lot of attention, you know. It was kind of, uh, it was more peers that were uh, more influential to me at that time. My coach was like, well, the first year he had been, the, our coach had been, you know, coaching the team for like 20 years, but that was his last year. 
and then, or maybe the first two, I don't remember exactly when he retired, but, um, and then our next coach was like a young gun, hot shot. He'd been in the program and stuff. And, um, I actually didn't really get along with him that well, but, um, I think the peers, the peer pressure and peer, uh, encouragement was a bigger factor in my, in my, my competition and my growth really. Well, you know, we're going to dive into the meaningful PE framework today because it, it has really inspired both you and I to think about what's possible when, when teaching young people physical education. And when I was listening to your story there, in the back of my mind now, I'm always putting these lenses on on movement and sport when I hear people talk, you know, when I interview pro athletes on, on the podcast or um, different people who have been um, inspired to uh, play sport. I'm always putting those lenses on it. And when I heard you talking there, you know, the meaningful PE framework has five features. So there's actually six, but I, in my own mind, I, I think it's five and it's uh, that idea of fun and joy and delight, which some researchers think are two separate things. I just look at it as joy and delight as one feature and then uh, personal relevance, social interaction, motor competence, challenge. And when you were talking about your story, I heard both motor competence and social interaction kind of pop Definitely. up. Definitely. Be- oh, yeah. Because you didn't, you admitted that you weren't a very good swimmer. So that motor competence took care of itself and, and that you were motivated to be around your peers and your peers had the biggest influence. So motor competence and, competence and social interaction. So speak more to those things. But then also how maybe personal relevance, the challenge, and um, which one am I missing? Um, fun. It fun. Yeah, joy. fun, actually. Okay. Swimming is boring. It's really like one of the most boring sports ever. I guess that you could, it's kind of meditative a little bit, you know, but uh, when you're swimming so much, like we would swim like 5,000 yards in a day, you know, so um, a lot of time to think. Uh, so I wouldn't say fun or personal relevance was uh, much of a factor for me, but challenge for sure, because, you know, that lane system I was telling you about, we were always trying to get, you know, you wanted to move up. So, and at least that was my mindset, you know, I didn't want to stay down in lane six. And yeah. um, and every time you moved up, you know, you get new lane mates and they're like, oh, hey, you're here now. Nice work, bro. You know, like that kind of thing. So I guess that was social, definitely social. Most of my friends were... Um, well, um, some of my friends were uh, on the swim team, and then there's the older dudes. You know, it's a, high school sports are so funny. You know, there's you know the, like a locker room culture, and like there was still there was like hazing going on in that time, and it it wasn't fun at the time. But sometimes when you look back on it, it's like oh, you know, it, it's it, there's definitely something going on there. You know, like I don't, I obviously I don't agree with bullying, but like sort of like rites of passages. I think I think it can be done well, yeah, or at least more humanely than often it is. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, so not hazing, but rites of passage. You know, right. like kind of. Uh, uh, you know, gaining trust with uh, older dudes and them taking you under your wing, being them being a mentor, that kind of thing, and then you doing the same thing in turn later on, you know? So there's that was definitely um, influential for me, you know? I kind of think about... And then 
Um, just the whole journey, really, you know, I guess that would be the journey of motor competence, you know, becoming more and more skilled and more confident and more competent, you know, that was the story of it, really, basically, it's going from the lowest rung to, um, you know, as high as I could go <laughs> at that time. But, but and, then there's that, mo- uh, that motivation piece is what you're talking about. I know motivation is not a feature in meaningful PE. But you were motivated to improve your skills, which means that the motivation came from the challenge of wanting to move lanes. And even though personal relevance wasn't in place, probably being around your friends was relevant to you. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But yeah. that social interaction piece really stands out. And I guess if we were to, to look at moving forward, because I know you, you're very creative and you did a lot of writing but um, talk about you. You had an independent degree or whatever it was. Talk about university and um, what you learned there. Yeah. Um, so I was actually um, an international baccalaureate student when I was in high school, and it was pretty rigorous, uh, as it still is now. Um, and. I kind of, I wouldn't say burned out, but I, I actually wanted to uh, take more control of my learning after high school. Because in high school, you don't really have control over what you're learning. Maybe you can choose your, your sixth subject, six subject in your language, you know. But um, other than that, you're basically bound to, uh, it's not very project-based, it's not very student directed it's like go do this and do a lot of homework and (laughs) learn what we want to learn or we want you to learn so um i ended up having a friend or actually it was a friend's older brother who went to this school called the evergreen state college in olympia washington and uh it's in the pacific northwest area or region of the united states beautiful area and um, it's an alternative liberal arts school where uh, their approach is very transdisciplinary. Uh, the first two years, you own, you, there's a range of programs, but within the program, everything is encompassed, your science, your math, your literature, your language. I actually ended up studying Russia for the whole first year, uh, becoming proficient in Russian. Which, which, which led you to Russia. Right, yeah, and then in the summer, I, I spent the summer in Russia studying at a university there. So that was, it's, you know, it's the transdisciplinary approach. It's really prepared me for being a PYP teacher, for sure. And then, uh, actually, the other option after your first two years is to, you can go on with programs, or you can uh, create your own classes. You get a mentor, a faculty mentor, and... You know, you create your syllabus, your concepts, your central idea, your course list, your uh, book list, your reading list, and then your final project is some something of your own design. And that's what I did for. Oh, you can do a group. I did a group contract. They're called contracts, actually, learning contracts. Uh, I did a group contract for my third. Um, well, I guess it would be. It's kind of weird because because of IB, I actually ended up testing or uh, earning enough credits to start as a sophomore. So I guess this was, and I also took some time off too. Um, maybe like the second half of my second year, I did a group contract, and then my final year, 
or the second half of my final year, I was on my own individual plan reading about like uh, Jungian psychology, the collective unconscious, archetypes, lots of poetry, and I ended up making my own poetry book at that time. Just a lot of art stuff. I was into music, still am. I was, a, I was <laughs> rapping at that time. I was in a rap trio called The Saints of Everyday Failures <laughs> and um, ended up staying on after school because I, I graduated college at 20 and uh, I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> And my degree wasn't really, it wasn't a specialized degree. It was very general, very artsy fartsy. So I ended up just working and uh, being in art and then ended up moving to, I was following a girlfriend at the time to Lansing, Michigan. She was going into med school. And this is just, I'm, this is how I ended up in teaching actually, uh, international teaching. I wasn't happy in Michigan and ended up sitting down at a table with a guy from Shanghai Community International School and being offered a job. And that's in 2004 or five, I think it was four. And then, yeah, ended up moving to Shanghai and living there nine years, starting off as a preschool teacher. Getting married. Which is K1. That's our K1. Getting married and having a boy, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Very cool. Um, And that's, we, your last year in China was what year again? 2014. Yes. Or 2014 15. Yeah, I think. Or no, 13 14. 2013 14. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we were there at the same time because I was at the Nanjing International School. But we we never met. Um, no. So, yeah, in the work that you're doing now, so you you were a classroom teacher, but then you moved to teaching early years PE. So that's what I want to dive into now, and the work that you're doing, and kind of um, the the vision that you have for teaching, and in knowing you and working closely with you the last four years, the way you described yourself as a learner in university is really how I see you in regards to uh, developing yourself professionally. It's very much inquiry-based. It's uh, taking, taking the reins uh, on your own learning and uh, reading as much as you can and tinkering and uh, being very innovative. So what, um, just talk about what led you to, to teaching PE and how over the years your practice has changed. And then we'll dive into specifics about what you're doing. Well, I was a, so yeah, I was a preschool teacher for like four or five years. And um, I always enjoyed, you know, I I enjoy sport. And um, at my school, the PE teacher who, he was a good friend of mine. um, And I would, you know, when my class uh, went to his class, I would just kind of stay along and help out because they were three years old and I enjoyed it, you know, so just getting a taste of that. And then he was moving on to um, Istanbul International School. And um, I just talked with the principal and decided to make the move, you know, um, just a new challenge, really, you know. I get a bit antsy sometimes. I Actually, that's what I like about PE is because, well, I guess every job has opportunities to get better and to change but I don't know I've just found through PE I've I've been able to like just change up constantly never doing not never doing the same thing but um, 
just really trying to make things better, trying to experiment, turn the gym into a lab, that kind of thing, trying out new ideas all the time. I can't do the same thing over and over again. It's just not possible for me. Um, and throughout my career, there's been, I've, I've been PE for about 10 years now, but throughout the, my career, there's been changes in grade levels. And uh, then halfway through, I moved here and started PYP. That's, <laughs> that's how I ended up on the blog uh, PYPPE with Andy. <laughs> and because uh, I wasn't PYP before that and mm. just trying to figure out inquiry. So that's been like this past five or six years here at this school has been a lot of like an X, like a, the growth curve has gone up, I think. And that's also partially due to the fact that we changed our, um, our professional development structure to go toward the inquiry, uh, mindset basically, you know, because at my old school it was, you know, smart goals or whatever principal comes in twice a year and checks you out. But this time, you know, it's this, this style of learning just, I mean, as I told you, my journey is being a self-directed learner trying to always better myself like in the pool going from lane six to lane one but now there's no lane one you just keep going up you know like there's no there's no highest level to go to you just keep improving every every day I I feel like you know or every year every month every unit and one of the things about your teaching is that you choose not to teach in the gymnasium with these Mm -hmm. kids that you have a dedicated space and, and you can use gym space but talk about um, why you don't use a gymnasium to teach these kids in early years. Because, again, we're talking not kindergarten. We're talking early, early years. We're talking three-year-olds. So Yeah, some yeah. of our students come in at two. Yeah, so just talk, talk about why you choose not to use the gymnasium and then talk about the space that you choose to teach in. Well, okay, I think there's a couple factors. First would be the social-emotional factor, Um, just thinking about the world at that height, you know, coming up halfway up my leg, you know, and uh, (laughs) or their height, their stature. And there's our gym at our school not really conducive to, uh, you know, like a feeling of emotional safety, I would say, or even physical safety. It's a big, giant, dark, drafty space that I... (laughs) I'm actually, it actually affects me too. I'm really, I'm a big natural light guy and there's like literally no natural light in the gym. It just feels kind of weird. And at my, we, uh, about halfway through my tenure here, I had a previous campus where it was a smaller gym, lots of light. It's just a better, more emotionally safe space for the kids. And you have to think about it like that because you could, uh, I'm all about engagement and if kids aren't feeling emotionally engaged they're, or emotionally safe, they're not going to be academically or physically engaged, right? They're not going to feel comfortable. So uh, we ended up, I ended up brainstorming uh, the use of this space that's uh, just across the lobby of our school. And it's carpeted. It's got that industrial carpeting so you can still bounce a ball on it. It's still, it's a, it's a good size space, and, mm-hmm. but it's not as forbidding. Yeah, and then you—it's also easily dividable, so you can have I've this. I've always had this during my uh, PE times, just kind of worked out that um, you have. I have a large open space usually where we can do like floor exercises and guided lessons, and then there's another area that's like kind of designed uh, with 
you know, lots of pads and equipment. And now we've gotten into make, creating like obstacle courses and um, just a space where kids can explore their skills. So that environmental design is very important to me also, uh, where kids can explore their skills. Um, they can apply their skills in their own way, basically. Um, then another reason for the um, switch to the smaller room and the carpet is actually a pretty good um, feature of this because I always have my kids come to PE barefoot. And this is a uh, recommendation of one of, I would, I would call her my, one of my mentors, I guess. Mm-hmm. I've, I've worked with her actually one-on-one and we've maintained a relationship between New Zealand and here is uh, Jill Connell author of the book Moving Child as a Learning Child. Uh, I think about three or four years ago, uh, we came across that book, and me and my former pet co, Ami Meyer-Domo, shout out, um, and we just devoured it and changed it changed our whole philosophy of teaching early childhood, basically. So uh, it's about the body teaching the brain, the foundation skills that all learners need are rooted in physical skills basically so uh and um so the barefoot is a way to uh get sensory information through another venue which it would be the bottom of your feet you know so that's it's more conducive to that um that style right and yeah so it's a it's more of a controlled environment and it's more of an inviting environment that i chose there yeah and when when i spend time in your class so what I see is, you know, when I work with you, I'll go in and I'll collect data for you um, based on class observations and your teaching. And we'll start outside the classroom and the kids come and they sit on a bench in front of the classroom. And then they go in through the door right away uh, doing some type of movement activity. And as yeah. you said, the room is divided. So you have these mats up as if uh, like a wall so that yep. you can't see what's on the other side of that wall. So they're just using half the space when they come in and they do that movement activity and you do that energizer, whatever it is, some type of fundamental skill um, uh, motor practice. And then you will do a little um, just a quick chat on what they learned the class before. And then you move in and take the divider down. And then that's when you have the obstacle course set up and whatever it is you're working on in that unit, and then the kids will go through the obstacle course and then have this exploration. So that has definitely changed from the first year I worked with you, right? Yeah, so, it has. Yeah. So now let's let's dive into, um, because the environmental design was part of your professional inquiry, so we've talked about the way you set up class to promote learning, deeper learning. So now let's jump into Meaningful PE, the Meaningful PE framework, and again, that idea of joy and delight, motor competence, personal relevance, social interaction, and challenge. Um, and, and let's talk about how you're using those features and what you're prioritizing um, in regards to those features with student yeah. learning. And let's, let's go there now. Yeah, so I think... Midway through last year, um, my inquiry last year was tuck- was like the um, inv- the language in the environment that I was using, symbolically, and uh, the la- more the language that speaks to children, right? 
So, um, you know, we were talking about symbolic language, visual language, directional language, uh, and then kind of <laughs> what I like to call clown language, like speaking very dorkily to <laughs> emphasize certain words that you want the students to uh, understand and notice, you know, and learn. Um, and then I guess from that, we talked about uh, what is relevant to children or uh, what what is going to make PE meaningful for students. And we got to uh, storytelling, right? Because mm-hmm. this age of children really learns through stories and narratives, movies, pictures. Um, so then we challenged ourselves in the last unit of the year, it was kind of a trial run for this year to um, make a unit based on a story. Mm-hmm. So it was a striking unit, and it was the, I believe the story was called uh, Strike Force Heroes or something yeah. like that. And you found the pictures for me, and then we um, just, you found like a lot of images for me, and I wrote a story from there. I created characters and a villain, and then... Um, so you told me the story. I think it was like you told me the story, because what I noticed about your teaching was you were great, very creative in an ad hoc way, you know, like at just creating stories on the spot to engage kids. So you, this was something you were already doing and then making up songs and singing them. And I was like, man, we got to like, you got to run with this, but you have to, I think you don't have to do anything. But my suggestion was that we actually map out what one of these stories would look like over the long term. So then you created this story in your head and then I went away and got images for you based on the, the, the story and the characters and, and what, it, what it was you wanted the kids to develop through that story, the skills. And then I gave you the, the images that you then put into a slideshow because you were telling these stories to kids, but then sometimes you were losing some of the kids, right? And this right, is what the right. data showed. So then by doing a slideshow as well, Along with the storytelling, we wanted to see if that had an impact on pulling those kids in that were a bit distracted, and it did right away. We noticed that. And that fits into the focus on uh, symbolic language that yeah. we were in at the time also. Yeah. yeah. So, so just keep going from there. Yeah, and then so the obstacle course changed from there because we started to, and again, symbolic language, uh, different obstacles, we we named them different things, you know, like we had a giant climbing net there. I think we called it a mountain or, and then there was like a, it's hard to describe. I'd have to, I'm, I'm actually collecting these pictures for a webinar I'm doing next week. But, um, you know, I have like an area with like a bunch of crumpled up paper and some stepping stones in between. So the kids are stepping uh, through the, we called it a pond, basically, yeah. you know, they're working on balance as they um, step through, you know, uh, like bridges, maybe like we've got some beams there that the kids will either slide along or crawl along or walk along. And then there's obstacles on the bridges, could be a caterpillar bridge where they're eating through uh, fruits, which is hula hoops that they need to go through based on the very hungry caterpillar story yeah. that we had read before. Um trampolines you know I remember we came up like they were had to count while they were jumping and they were like charging up their uh energy and then so then we created a map for this too so 
And we, and during this was a striking unit and like kind of a eye hand coordination unit. So we would have them, uh, you know, balancing balls or bean bags on racket faces while they were going through there. It was very challenging, <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> you know, or some of them liked it. You yeah. know, I guess the kids that are into challenge yeah, yeah. were were there were you know there was quite a few. Yeah. Uh, and it was it's nice to see because there's I, I wouldn't say perseverance is a huge feature of uh, three year old children, you know, um, but they were allowed. You know, what we did is we kind of, you know, I don't want to say that we were taking their choice away, but we would ask them to try it. Right. And then they could go on exactly. and experience it in their own way. So yeah. that's kind of how the obstacle course has evolved also. Um you know, in the past, it would be like, first you do this, 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 and then start over, you know? So yeah. it's always running in the same direction. They have to do the same thing in the same order. Yeah. And then we kind of tweaked it so that, I mean, it is best practice for everybody to kind of be moving in the same direction, you know? Because yeah. if they're not, first of all, it gets kind of to be a free-for-all. There can be safety concerns if kids are going in opposite directions that don't have great spatial awareness. So now it's kind of become like a training them to go in a certain direction, like yeah. clockwise or counterclockwise and a progression. But then once they've got that down, then that's when they go, they have more agency, they have more autonomy, they can choose what's most relevant to them. Yeah. And uh, what and uh, Jill Connell says, and we've been kind of exploring this, it's really difficult to uh, get data on it, but... Um, she would say that the, the, the choices that the kids make could tell us about their uh, physical needs, like what skills they need to develop. Because, you know, like repetition is the way that kids develop skills at this age. You know, that's like when daddy's, uh, you know, swinging a kid around upside down. Guess what that's developing? It's developing their inner ear. It's developing their balance, their vestibular uh, sense. And then, and why do they ask again and again? Because they need it's like reps in the gym, you know. That's, um, so we're, our theory is that if a, if a student chooses to go uh, to an area over and over again, we could um, assume or ascertain or infer that that's a skill that they're lacking or they need. Their body is telling them they need to develop. But you can also flip it the other way, where if they're adverse to some area that's another area that they need they need um practice in like if a kid doesn't want to go on a balance beam or you remember that kid um well we won't say his name but um the boat when we were witnessing him climbing oh yeah yeah and he couldn't he was literally shaky it wasn't very high it was about what maybe four four feet four feet off the ground or something like Shaking, and I'm standing behind him with my hand on his back, and he's trying to lift his leg up onto like you know those trapezoidal uh, yeah. gymnastics things. And it, his vestibular development was so poor that he was literally scared out of his wits. Yeah, and um, so that's where we need to you know we need to support them in different ways to build vestibular. You could build vestibular by rolling sideways or uh, forward, you know, spinning slowly around or hanging upside down. So instead of um, forcing them into something to practice it, you can find different ways. That's how you can diagnose problems, I guess. Yeah, and that's what that's yeah. interesting because that's what you would do. So you you would 
you know, again, you would start the beginning of class with them doing some movement activities, some energizer, do some prior learning, you know, just tap into that, open up the, the mats to go through the obstacle course. And as you said, the, the first couple times the kids would have to go through it each class in order. Um, you yeah, know, just to get the taste of everything and get of kind of a routine down, of yeah. like a, mo- a muscle memory of a safe way to travel. Yeah. But then, yeah. then you're telling. But then that's where you would tell the story before doing doing the obstacle course. You would tell the story, so you know there'd be a new part to the story with each each week. Yeah. And then right. open up the obstacle course, and then the exploration. That's when we stood back and just watched and collected data. So what we did um, with the meaningful PE team with Dr. Tim Fletcher and Deirdre. Um, Deirdre. Yeah, I'm going to let you say her last name. Necronin? <laughs> yes, I'm probably something like that. I don't know. I hope I, I said that right. But she's based yeah. in Ireland. And um, yeah. so we came up with this idea of, of using your work and collecting data um, regarding your teaching and learning um, for the another purpose, was, which is also to write something up for them as a case study. So we yeah. were, we were um, working on multiple things, but what the data showed us, we were you were focused on relevance, right? That storytelling is relevant to kids. Then we wanted to take data on which area that they gravitated towards in the obstacle course area, right? Right. So that yeah. that was pretty interesting to to see that. So just talk more about that unit and a little bit about the story and a little bit about our findings. Yes, so I've actually had, I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm trying to write about it. But um, So that was a movement composition unit. Uh, the story was actually a compilation, uh, we'll call it an anthology story, an anthology of stories, basically. The title was The Magic Soup Pot. So we were uh, running through all the... Um, elements of creative movement, uh, body, action, space, time, and energy. And each, I think we had over 25 stories in that unit where, and, and this is uh, this is where I've gotten more in depth into creating these stories. I was writing poetry for the children to move to and yeah. creating these little stories that had, um, you know, the, the, each one of them was focused on a different uh, movement aspect. Like what's jumping to mind right now, we're talking about space. There was a story called Jerry the Giant and Andy Ant. And uh, I think you saw this story. Yeah. So, you know, they're moving like a giant and we're just we're just kind of creatively moving around in our space. We had like a little house made out of um, the large mats stood up on their sides Mm -hmm. and actually, so they have to move large, then they have to move small, like an ant. And there's a whole poem that goes along with it. And I think it was a limerick style actually. And um, then at some point they actually destroy the house and we have to build it back up. And uh, then we have to like learn to move within our space, kind of moving medium, not too large, not too small. Uh, So that's just an example of one of the stories that we had And um, so also in this unit, I decided to build the um, obstacle course actually week by week with the students. So the obstacle course was also um, linked to 
aspects of um, creative movement. We had a mountain, which was we were you could talk about levels, low level, medium level, high level. And so I would build the mountain for the kids. Then they'd um, they'd explore it for a week, and uh, so that's two lessons. And then the next week, I would introduce the next part that's kind of in in um, this. It's like what's the word I'm looking for? Scale. Chronologically and spatially, oh, yeah. uh, it looks like it's next, right? So yeah. you go from up the mountain, down the mountain. Instead of going back around to the beginning of the mountain, now we're going to go on to the next thing, which was like these uh, seesaw, teeter-totter yeah. type things when we were practicing balances, right? Uh, static balances. And so they could, you know, practice weight transfer there and establishing balance. Then the next thing was a set of pathways. So pathways is another way to um, utilize space. And in I think in the shape America standards or in NEP standards, really, you'll be talking about straight, curved, and zigzag pathways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're very applicable to, uh, you know, different things that we do in sports and games, right, or ways that we move in sports and games. That's the other thing about these skills. These aren't splinter skills. We're not talking about like sports for three-year-old children. We're yeah. talking about transferable skills, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and these these uh, these areas were open-ended kind of provocations for them. There wasn't like one way to access the learning, you know. And there's it was a low threshold to participation, but you could challenge yourself also. Yeah. So we put low threshold, high ceilings, right? Yeah. And wide walls, many ways to you know work with the provocation. Uh, then I think we had a bridge, so they yeah. would be practicing like all kinds of balancing or uh, intuition, which is your body awareness. You know, fitting into tight spaces. Little kids always have to continually work on body awareness because the shape and size of their body is always changing. You know, and that's why, like in you know, like if you're you, you see like a bunch of whatever kindergartners or even younger or even older. You know, they're standing in line. There's one kid who just can't seem to keep his hands off somebody else or they're bumping into things in the classroom. It's not necessarily that they're, you know, they can't keep their hand or that, you know, they're trying to get everybody's goat or whatever, but they actually don't have a good sense of their body in space. So that's another foundation skill, another functional skill that they can transfer on later on in the classroom and in life. Um, We had... um, Scooter, we had a line tied to the bridge that was, that was also cool. tied to something else along the ground. So they're pulling themselves hand over hand on a scooter board. Cable they can cars. Hear that on their, what's that? Cable cars. Yeah, it was called the cable cars. That's yeah. right. Um, so that's a power thing, you know, like we're not, it, it is building up strength, of course, core strength, but power is not all about strength. It's also about agility and stamina and flexibility. Um, and, I th- you know, they had some, they had lily pads, they were jumping, and uh, then they, you know, then they could go back. I think that's everything. Yeah. There was also a little house that they could go into, too, that was, it's also a, a proprioception area. Proprioception is your sense of self in space. Right. And so you, you and, told this story. Yeah. So, so you would tell the story, you'd open up the station by telling the story um, that um, that week. Connected was, to those areas. Yeah, exactly. And then, again, going through the um, obstacle course uh, from start to finish, and then the kids could explore whatever they wanted. So we took data on six kids 
in particular. Right. And, and we were using the vocabulary of importance rather than relevance. Yes. For so you really students. worked hard at introducing the word, which area is most important to you. And you, yeah. you emphasized it over and over and over and over. And then the there was a storybook we had too called the important book. And yeah, there was exactly. also, we used a stuffed animal called Chloe the leopard cub that the kids yeah. could talk to also. This was part of uh, Deirdre's recommendation of the uh, mosaic approach, you know, yeah. just so just kind of making kids um, more comfortable with sharing their learning and yeah. in the ways that is better for them. You know, so this was where you came in. They could draw a picture. They could show us. They could take a picture of their most important area. They could tell us they could draw a picture of a map. They could talk to Chloe, the leopard cub. Lots of different ways to listen to the children, you know? Yeah. And what was interesting, so so now as I sit back and you're kind of there supporting them, I'm checking off where they're going during the during the rest of the class and and in particular where they went first, because we were yeah. we were trying to not say for certain we know this, but we um, we felt that the kids would gravitate towards what was relevant to them. And it was pretty consistent with the six kids. They, they went to what was most important to them. Um, maybe it was the mountain or the scales, as you say, or the cable cars where they pulled themselves along. But it was pretty consistent over a succession of classes that they went to the same first station, which showed yeah. that relevance piece. And then we just monitored where they went after that. And we had some kids that were were like equal explorers. They they went to each yeah. one equally. And then there was uh, some kids that just stayed on the mountain or right. a couple different ones. But we did start to see some patterns. So just kind of talk about some of those patterns we saw. Yeah, so there was a couple different kinds of kids that we saw, right? And I think we tried to explain or infer some... Um, <clears throat> some some conclusions from what we saw and it wasn't it's not a ton of data we'll say six kids three boys three girls and i think it was over eight lessons that you saw or was it six lessons that you i saw, saw. No, i saw four. Oh and, yeah, yeah but then you had seen all eight. eight lessons total and you saw four yes yeah. that's right yeah um so yeah so you could you were talking about the kids that um yeah maybe they go to the same place each time because I would direct them to go to the first go to the place that was most important to them right yeah. and they sometimes go one by one or sometimes I release them at the same time I think we went one by one when we were trying to build up that skill and then we yeah. kind of just let them flow yeah uh, and then so the, they might go to the same place at the beginning but this kind of kid I, I think we're I was calling them like dabblers you know, or maybe tasters would be better. You know, they were sampling samplers, maybe Sample. they were sampling everything and they, they enjoyed going in order and, um, you know, kind of a, maybe not a pattern, but a sequence of, um, different kinds of activities, two out of the six kinds of skills. I think there two, was two, two out of the two six were, like were samplers. Yeah. Yeah. But then there was kids that gravitated towards, so I don't know what our conclusion would be from that. I guess just that they, you know, they ex they enjoyed experimenting, exploring a wide range of choices. What would that be? How would that be 
I guess, would it be personally relevant to them that they had a lot of choices? Would that be, yeah, or it, would it, it could be, be a motor competence and, thing? Because they I, want to I think what more we, challenge people? Yeah, exactly. More, I think what we were talking about, and this is where COVID kicked our ass, right? Because we were right in the middle of our research project um, yeah. and went to distance learning. But I prioritize the, the feature of challenge when I do co-teaching in the PE program here. And then we, I feel that the other motor competence and these other th- um, motor comp- competence in particular is a byproduct of choosing the right challenge you were prioritizing personal relevance based on, you know, storytelling is relevant to the kids. And then through the, the choices you had set up, seeing what they went to first, um, saying the most important area where they went first was personally relevant to them. And then we started to see some patterns. But I think, yeah, we didn't have enough data, but from what yeah. we saw... We definitely saw dabblers versus kids that were focused on particular areas of that obstacle course, climbers, you yeah. know, the mountain. And that's kind of what I'm talking before. We, I would like to find out more about whether they're choosing, you know, but through closer observation, maybe uh, even going into their backstory a little bit, could even be parent interviews. What is it, what is making them choose that area, you know? Yeah. And this is where I think, I, we have sort of, there's kind of a weird little, when we look at the the meaningful PE framework, I started to look at it because we talked, you know, I was talking about prioritizing relevance as uh, for students, right? But what I've come to think about was I prioritizing relevance as a pedagogical choice rather than a, it's not the student's choice that they're, you know, they they enjoy something in PE because it's personally relevant to them. It's not for me to say what is personally relevant to the students, right? Yeah. Uh, or each individual student, I can say what I think is relevant to an age group, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I can make pedagogical choices made based on that assumption or you know knowledge gained over a fifteen-year career. Um, but then what I'm saying is it's instead of uh, personal relevance or focus, focusing on personal relevance for them, I need to find out what is personally relevant to them, which might be challenge, social interaction, yes, yes, fun, yes, motor yes, competence. Yes, yes. That's so, that. And that deserves mo- that's how you really know your students. And then, so I'm thinking about this as an inquiry for next year is gathering data on the students and trying to diagnose them as a, uh, you know, which, which, what makes PE meaningful for them. And then you could go through as an experiment, um, like, like-minded groupings also small groupings. Yeah, yeah. I think Jorge and I were talking about this last week, uh, as an inquiry for next year. So that's, Really, you have to know you have, like really observing and talking with and knowing your students is uh, key for this. Yeah. So that could be a next step. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's where our conversation started to go when when COVID uh, we went to distance right. learning. And so, what you're saying to summarize what you're saying, you're saying that the personal relevance piece is um, if they choose something for just fun if they choose something for challenge, if they choose something to build their motor competence skills, or they choose just to hang out with their friends. So personal relevance 
a byproduct of personal relevance is prioritizing a, a feature or two. Well, students prioritize. Yeah, that's, right? that's what I mean. Yeah. And then you're saying really understanding what that looks like. And that's a great way to look at this meaningful um, PE framework. And uh, our next step is exactly as you just um, described is to, to look at that. And if kids gravitate towards more towards just re- repetition of doing something over and over and over, they're probably really drawn to motor, motor competence, right? So yeah. it'll be interesting to see what, what comes out of this. So, yeah, I think that's what I think we, I think Jorge and I want to have a shared inquiry next year. Yeah, and awesome. We'll definitely be delving deeper into the meaningful PE model and uh, probably another, some sort of research project. Um, I think that's the way we're going. Um, you know, this year I didn't do any outside professional development. I actually focused on, kind of creating professional development. You know, this is my time right now. We did get sidetracked, unfortunately, and I'm just now unburying myself from, um, you know, uh, changing up to a different form of learning, style of learning, and also helping my own son. But right now, this is actually the week where I'm generating, uh, or actually this whole month has been where I'm generating some of my findings and I'm going to be sharing them with the world. So we're kind of, I feel like we're going on to a track, not of professional, professionally developing ourselves, although we are, but uh, moving towards sharing what we've learned because we've done some projects that I believe merit uh, closer inspection by a, a wider group of educators and professionals yeah. and researchers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love that. And um, that's one of the things when I started working with Tim quite closely, uh, we started working together, must be seven years ago now. Um, you know, at the time, he was just dabbling in this meaningful PE framework, and then it became very clear. And then he had a team that gathered to further develop this framework. Um, in the last few years, we've been heavily focused on the framework. And one of the things that I, I felt I was struggling with with the framework was it was just meant to be how I interpreted it based on their work was these features are meant just to kind of help you think about teaching and learning and to plan. And in right. my head, I was exactly. like, no, 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 no. I really think that these features need to be unpacked with students. And we need to develop the language with students to unpack these features so that the students are aware of what these features are so that we can begin to really build a program based around these features and the students understanding the features to deepen their own learning and that we're in this journey together. And that's what you're describing. So a lot of the work that we're doing is um, unknown uncharted territory for the meaningful PE team because they're because they don't have enough, they don't have a lot of early years data right yeah not it's a, mostly yeah. based on data from elementary and high school secondary yeah. students right so yeah. i think that it it's an interesting way cuz and that's their biggest hope is how are you using this framework how are you interpreting this framework how are you applying this framework so they definitely don't adhere to one size fits all this is how you must do it so that's been really interesting working with them, and I appreciate their um, their openness to ideas and 
really taking in this information to uh, better educate themselves about their own model or their own framework. I was actually just going to say that I really appreciate that about Tim and Deirdre because they're not prescriptive in their, um, you know, they, they're not uh, beholden to their model or their framework, right? Because yeah. it's basically just based on a literate, literature review and student feedback, right? Yeah. So, and they've drawn conclusions from that. They've categorized, they've streamlined, but they're not beholden to what's happening right now. If they get other information, you know, it's possible this could, you know, it could, it could morph it a little bit, yeah. you know, they're very open. They're not, uh, they're not closed off at all. Yeah. And, uh, they've been very helpful also. And they they approach it like scientists, you know, they yeah. are scientists. They're yeah. just studying. They're trying, they're not biased. They're not like, Oh, well, they're, you know, sometimes you can get biased by your conclusions, right? You know, if something that comes, if some information comes forward that doesn't support your conclusion, then, could be disregarded, you know, but I don't feel that from them at all. Yeah, not at all. And that's what's been great. They're very much, they have a, an inquiry mindset themselves, um, you know, to the work that they do. So, um, yeah, what I'd like to do just to, I think we've done a good job kind of summarizing the work you're doing. And obviously we're going to continue to work together very closely on this, but uh, it's great to see you doing uh, your writing and putting your thoughts together and thinking about next steps and it's great to see you starting to present more and I think that's why we did some work together in Poland you went to Poland with me to do some work at a conference there that I was running and uh, we got sidetracked again this year because of COVID because we had some plans to do more work together uh, outside of Kaust so we know those days are still out there and they're they're coming but um, just to close off the show where can people find you? I am uh, at Mr. Zach P.E. on Twitter, M-R-Z-A-C-K-P-E. I don't have a website or anything right now, but I'm on Twitter. Okay, great. And uh, yeah, yeah, and you're doing a webinar for Adam Laveau's Charged Up Education? That's right. I think it's going to be on the 24th. I think that's my slot. But if yeah, again, if you check me on Twitter, you can find it. It's been going around. I I need to promote it more, actually. Okay, excellent. Okay, Zach, thanks. Just stay on the line as I close out the show. Uh, Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Zach Smith, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. You're listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasily.